Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, Suzanne, thank you, for your support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and there you'll find many ways to subscribe plus extra bonus material and episodes to enjoy. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. You can also support the show by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which is greatly appreciated and will help the podcast reach a much bigger audience. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who is also a broadcaster and author. He has been principal conductor with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and music director of English National Opera, as well as guest conducting all over the world. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mark Wigglesworth. Mark, real pleasure to speak to you today. I hope you're well. Very well. Yes, good afternoon. And uh, how are you coping at the moment? Are you learning scores? Because I know I'm not. I mean, I've been busy doing podcasts, but I know a lot of conductors are not learning scores. They're spending the time doing other things. What have you been doing? Well, I think those of us who are parents are certainly very engaged in, in that responsibility. And it's it's tempting to think oh, I've got this time for scores but as you say it is quite hard to it's quite hard to focus and concentrate mm. and there's so many bigger issues going around that um it's 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 easier said than done I yeah. would say I wonder if we could go right back to the very beginning when did music first touch your life and enter into your consciousness <laughs> um I was quite a conventional child learning the music, I think, played the piano, um, then the violin, the musical household. My parents were both very musical, neither were musicians, but it was very much in the family. I think I started too late though, to be a really, uh, to be able to feel truly comfortable on the instrument. I think uh, as hard as it is to start a child young, I do think that is what has to happen, certainly with violin and piano. I was always, I was always, the technique was always a struggle (laughs) and uh, conducting was a nice way out of that, to be honest. Um, Just, I just felt with the piano particularly, you know, I played all these sort of difficult pieces, but it was always a stress and a strain and um, I just didn't, it didn't feel like it was me. Mm. I, I, I loved it and I would say it defined my childhood and school years was practicing the piano um but it but i yeah never really felt like i could express myself through it and with the violin did you play in ensembles and orchestras i played in school orchestras Mm. yes was that a place where you enjoyed music making um i did enjoy i mean i went the school i went to the emphasis really was on playing and at, at home, the emphasis was on playing as opposed to listening. And, and uh, in the 70s, frankly, uh, there wasn't much available. I mean, mm. nowadays, there's so much that you can listen to and it's very easy just to be a passive music lover. In, uh, the school very much believed that, that music was something you did. And I think that's a fantastic um, experience. So yeah, also quartets and string orchestras and orchestras. I mean, I was never, I, I was never good on the violin at all, but <laughs> I think learning it was 
probably more useful to me now than learning the piano. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a subject that came up uh, in a previous podcast with Karina Kanalakis, you know, about the fact that... Of course, uh, yes. As violinists, we were both professional violinists, but, you know, do we consider ourselves lucky in the fact that we learned a stringed instrument when it now, when you later on, you come to work with orchestras? And I think we both agreed that we did. Um, I think there's a sense of the sense of bow speed and bow pressure influences your own speed and pressure of beat. And, mm. and that's valid for sort of two thirds of the orchestra. Uh, it, it's a, it's, it feels a very comfortable connection. Mm. So um, at, w- at what point uh, of school or Manchester Uni did conducting first enter into your life? Definitely at school. Um, no. I did it as part of my A-level, actually. Uh, a quarter of my A-level was conducting a concert. And uh, some guy came down from London to adjudicate it. And the school... Uh, admirable really when, with hindsight to, to give me the choir and give me the orchestra and allow me to put on a concert public concert or probably not many public there but a concert and they trusted me to to do it and um, so from very early age it felt kind of okay and sort of psychologically okay and natural and then at university I spent most of my time uh, fixing orchestras and Hmm. and putting on concerts like most of us I suspect. Purely out of interest was that A-level because we're not too dissimilar in age the old A-level practical because you could do an A-level theoretical and A-level practical in music and it was an easy way of getting two A-levels. Interesting I it it was it was it was just at one A-level right but um, half of it a quarter of it was conducting and a quarter of it was um, piano I think which is quite far-sighted of whichever board it was. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When you were at Manchester University, did you have any conducting lessons? Or was it when you left and went to the Royal Academy that you got lessons? Um, I didn't have any lessons specifically at university, but I'd already started going to George Hurst at Canford Mm. in the summers, um, which was life-changing, to be honest. And it was quite hard to get anybody at Manchester University to take any interest in what I was doing from that point of view. Um, I learned an enormous amount by doing it, Mm. um, but I didn't have any lessons from, I was at the university, not the Royal Northern. And uh, so obviously it was a a slightly more academic approach and they tolerated my conducting um, experiences. Um, But no, nobody taught me anything until I properly started at the Royal Academy of Music um, with George, of course, and, and Colin Metters and John Carew. Mm. What did George teach you uh, specifically? Um, did he have an all-round approach or was he very hot on one particular thing? Well, he was a very domineering personality. Right. Um, and I completely fell under his spell. Mm. And I would say that um, he taught me everything I like about my conducting and everything I hate about my conducting. <laughs> and it's t- it's t- it took me a very long time, and I'm probably still engaging in this, to sort of find my own way. When, we, when you have such a powerful teacher on a psychological level who mm. you come across very young, it's very hard to realise there are other ways of doing things. And, um, of course, what's right for one conductor is not right for another. So finding your own voice was difficult with him to be honest Mm. but his care for the music 
and his understanding of logic, by which I mean he always wanted you to be traveling from A to B and mm. knowing the flexibility of tempo. I remember doing sort of the, the variations with him, um, Eroica or Enigma, and he would, the sort of subtlety of which he would adjust things was very uh, thought provoking. And I think something that I spend a lot of time now thinking about. Mm. And then when you went to the academy, you said Colin Metters and John Carew were also teaching. They were uh, wonderfully different. I mean, yes. we, and, and I think at the time I found it confusing to have such different approaches. But with hindsight, again, it forced you to find your own way. Mm. And that is a really good thing. Because I think the danger of conducting courses and institutions is that you come out a reflection of that course or that institution. What was good mm. about the academy was George came in occasionally, Colin sort of held the reins most of the time, and we had weekly visits, I think, to John Carew, who was, who was very provocative musically <laughs> uh, in, in a good way, and really made you think that ultimately it's the music that matters. Mm. And of course, technique is, is significant skill to have, but if you don't know what you're wanting to express, then there's no point having a technique. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a great basis those three different, as you say, you look back on it now, those three different teachers and teaching approaches. And I think that's always the art of a great teacher is it's sometimes 20 years later, you're still thinking, hang on a minute, what they said then means this now. Um, you know, and they weren't just producing clones of themselves, which is, which is very admirable. I think what I really remember from that, when you're, at an institution for three years, as, as the academy course was in those days, there's a lot that you don't remember, to mm. be honest. But I remember half a dozen, and frankly, half a dozen is plenty, of moments that changed my outlook on conducting for the better. And, uh, you know, half a dozen moments might not sound a lot in three years, but they were so fundamental to trying to get better. Mm. That, that just being pushed, having certain buttons pressed at the right time is something I'm, all, I'm very grateful for. So how long after you left the Academy did you enter the Kondrashin competition? Three weeks. Wow. <laughs> so that was, um, I mean, I'm convinced I did well in that competition because I had no expectation of doing so. Mm. And I, I had nothing else to do leaving the academy. I, I had no idea what I was going to do. And so why not go to Amsterdam? Um, one way ticket didn't take my concert gear because that was only going to be in the final where I had to get there. So I didn't have that with me. <laughs> Uh, and the whole thing, I mean, I think my naivety, I mean, naivety is a very good quality to have and experience can force you to ask too many questions. And, and I was very relaxed and thought the whole thing was rather thrilling. It sounds very similar to the experience of Andrew Lytton and Martin Brabins, both of which who won competitions and both of which who entered 
thinking, well, this will be a bit of fun. Andrew Lytton in particular, he said, we know, I probably won't get past the first round. I'll have a week sightseeing in London and go home. Um, and yeah, they, I think they, they both went into it very relaxed and sort of, you know, with no expectations of getting, as you say, getting to the final even. One of my memories of that was one of the other contestants coming out and showing me the baton he used for Mozart and the baton he used for Tchaikovsky. And me feeling, I never, I had no idea one needed a different baton for every composer. <laughs> Being sort of completely freaked out by this, which was presumably this person's intention. But anyway. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I, I don't think I could. How many batons would we have to own if that was the case? Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, and so winning a competition like that, you, part of the prize is, is always a list of guest engagements and in previous episodes I called it the hamster wheel of guest conducting and so how was that for you you know literally thrown into a career or the startings of a career well I said no to the prize actually the prize was as you say sort of between 10 and 15 orchestras had promised the winner a concert and we're talking serious orchestras mm. Montreal Symphony Berlin Radio Symphony um, I, I can't remember some of them, but, but you know, A-level a orchestras. And I just felt that having one didn't make me ready. Mm. Just because I'd won, I didn't feel ready. So I didn't um, take up any of those offers. But what I did get, and, and so that it was an agent as a result of this. Mm. And I say that because it sounds very impressive to be able to turn down these orchestras. And, and I don't think no if I'd have had the confidence to do that if I hadn't had management to sort of you know find me more suitable orchestras to work with initially mm. so it was a, I, I was able to be that um, suspicious of myself that that precious if you like because there was a sort of safety net had been created and and so the main the thing that really came from the competition was was management well I mean that's a subject I've not touched on at all in the previous 20 or so episodes is management. Agents and managers are very, very important in our lives as conductors. What would you say would be the most important characteristic of the agents and managers that you've had? You've, you've had two managers, I think. Two main managers. And I yeah. think what it is a fascinating and I think very complicated relationship to be honest mm. uh who's working for who who's yeah. you know is a is a is always an intriguing one um at its best though the manager is uh telling you you know you shouldn't do that or you should do this and that kind of advice from a trusted source uh is invaluable because mm. you don't it's very hard to be truly objective in your own work you probably shouldn't you shouldn't be frankly so to know how something's working is is always challenging and ideally you have somebody who you trust who is in a position to say Do you know what? i don't think you should work with that orchestra or or i don't think that is the right piece for you to do with that orchestra and it's quite hard to persuade them that you want them to be that honest mm. um, because part of their job is also to keep you confident and 
they want you to feel good about yourself. So, you know, it's too much. It's all very well saying, tell me what the orchestra thought. Tell me what the orchestra thought. Well, up to a point, <laughs> do, you <laughs> yeah. want, do you want to know that? Yeah. And, you know, on any given day, how much uh, criticism you want to hear is going to vary. So I think uh, the manager has a very difficult job of knowing when to encourage and when to put a sort of realistic uh, glasses on, on you. Especially at the age you're talking of, uh, coming out of the contracting competition and having just finished your studies, that, that uh, the very, your first agent is, is a very important relationship. I think, on looking back, and I don't criticise my management for this, I, blame, mm. I, take full, I think we all have to take responsibility for our choices and it's wrong to blame others for the choices that you were adamant you wanted to make. But on reflection, I made some bad choices, I think, early on, um, or certainly choices that I regret. Mm. Um, I don't know, it's easy for me to say I wish a manager had told me not to do something, I don't, because I don't know how I would have reacted at the time. So it's not necessarily, it's easy to look back, isn't it? Mm, but yeah. I, I think basically I was um, uh, overexposed too early. And um, now there are far more young conductors than there were 30 years ago. There yes, were very few conductors in their 20s then. Mm. Whether that is now easier or harder, I, I wouldn't know but there's because the pressure to be a success in your 20s now is quite strong. 30 years ago, I didn't sense any pr pressure from the profession, if you like, but I certainly there was a pressure from the orchestras who felt, understandably, what is this 26-year-old doing conducting a, a Mahler symphony with us? <laughs> no, you're right, it has changed. You know, I, I was... You know, I remember 30, 30 years ago distinctly because it was around the time I was leaving or in the middle of music college and leaving. And, you know, a young conductor such as yourself, 26, 25, 24, like Simon or whatever, you know, though those names sort of leapt at you because, oh, there's a new young conductor. Nowadays, they're appearing every five minutes. Um, and as you say, you know, maybe it's easier for them to sort of slip under the radar a bit and, and make more mistakes because we all have to make mistakes to get better in some degree. When you're yes, young. I, I think the problem I had was that my mistakes were very, um, were pretty public. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I conducted in the proms in 91, I think, uh, Barbican and Festival Hall all around that time. And I was thrilled to be doing it and incredibly grateful for the opportunities. But looking back, you just feel, um, you wonder if a little slower would have would have been a more enjoyable learning experience because mm. it is hard to learn when you're under that much pressure mm. under the spotlight exactly yeah um looking at those times you were associate conductor with the bbc symphony orchestra um for two years um was that really the first appointment that you had after winning the congression competition absolutely and yeah. john Dr john drummond who was sort of running the world <laughs> at, at, at the time yeah. was uh, w wonderfully supportive. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, you, you wonder whether he was perhaps too supportive. Mm. Yeah. But as I, say, as I say, I certainly was grateful at the time. Mm. 
And the and whilst we're in BBC World, your first job as mu music director, it wasn't, I mean, it was principal conductor, but it was with BBC National Orchestra Wales. Um, how was that? Uh, did you enjoy working in with the BBC? Would, you know, the amount of repertoire that you have to get through, often some of it rather obscure, and then, you know, mixed in with standard stuff. What, was the, what were those years like in Cardiff? I enjoyed it a lot. The BBC mm. National Orchestra of Wales had, has the huge advantage that it's the National Orchestra of Wales, yeah. as well as the BBC Orchestra. So it had a remit to perform the widest range of repertoire without anybody saying, you're a BBC Orchestra, surely you should be doing uh, the, you know, the minority composers. So we were able to do a fantastic blend of repertoire. And I didn't feel overly stretched in that respect mm. at all. I think um, looking back on it, um, I enjoyed it musically a lot. I think I probably got too involved in the organization of everything for anybody's good, <laughs> including my own. But uh, I felt at the time that, that that was part of the job of being a music director to sort of get your hands dirty with all the aspects of the organization. Mm. I'm not sure if that's true anymore, I, or I'm not sure anymore if that's true, that your job probably is to stick to the music as much as possible. But I enjoyed the musical relationship with them hugely. Mm. I think with, with the BBC, maybe that's the case, is that, that you are less required to know about the players' contracts, that, about funding, about you know um, all of the minutiae that you would need to know if you were running an opera house or a symphony orchestra that wasn't affiliated with the BBC. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that seems to be the case. Well, yes, it certainly was mm. the case then. And, and I think my feeling that I did think it mattered that how people's lives were affected by the BBC affected the music making. Mm, but yeah, yeah. you have to draw a line as to what your, um, what your responsibility is. And looking back, I think to have stuck more, to have stuck to the music would have been a um, probably a smoother a smoother ride. Looking at another area of music making that you're particularly fond of, well, I'm assuming you are because I'm going to list a whole stream of opera houses that you've worked at. A Bavarian State Opera, Semper Opera Dresden, Teatro Real, Netherlands Opera, Welsh National Opera, Glyndebourne, also English National Opera for, as um, music director. What is it about opera that you love uh, and love conducting? Well, I love the words and, mm. the, and the drama. And I love the theatre in the, in the most sort of obvious sense. I love being in the pit uh, in a darkened auditorium uh, with the lights. I love the smell of makeup and that whole kind of sense of occasion that an opera is, is thrilling. And I love the fact that you're on, working on the same piece with the same people for how many weeks it is. Mm. There is something very, uh, on a human level, there's something very stimulating about that. 
more challenging, of course, for obvious reasons. But mm. when the when the dynamic, when the human dynamic is right between you and the director and the singers and the stage management and the orchestra and the chorus, it's there's nothing better than it than that. And and do you try and actively get a really good mix? of because as you said opera takes six seven eight weeks to put together and then the run of performances whereas you know if you go and do some of your work as principal guest at adelaide in australia for instance you're you might only be there for a week or two weeks do you try and mix that well during the year with you and your agent or are you happy would you be happier doing more opera and less symphonic or the other way around I'm very happy doing a balance, which is sort of 50-50 in an ideal world. Opera is planned further in advance, as you know, so you yeah. kind of are able to put the operas in first. Um, interestingly, in the situation we're in now, opera's got, I think, far more complicated yeah. way through this than the symphony orchestra. Symphony orchestra can, you know, get back up and running as soon as it's safe and and everybody wants it to uh the the, the nightmares that opera organizations must be going through in terms of the knock-on effects of things being postponed or cancelled is uh heaven knows what they're having to do mm. but under normal circumstances um putting the operas in first is just a practical response to the to the timing of the profession but i would be disappointed not to do uh, any opera in a, in any given year. How many operas would you manage to fit in in a year? In a year? Uh, I think proper operas, by which I mean <laughs> proper engagements of six or eight weeks, as you say, yes. including. The, well, ideally, you're looking at just two. Right. Um, and once you start to do more of that, then your preparation time is going to be slightly compromised, and your symphonic time is going to be um, reduced. So. Um, Two is, I mean, they're big things, operas, that, you mm. know, they need a lot of time in to prepare them and then to rehearse them and then to perform them. And I love that. But um, two is probably an ideal, yeah. When you say proper operas, do you, or are you alluding to the sort of going in for one night and doing a Labo M because everybody knows that you can conduct Labo M or Carmen or... Uh, well, yes, is that, that's exactly is that, what I mean. Yeah, that's an improper opera. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it, well, it's interesting. Mm. I've done a couple of uh, things like that in Germany and um, it's actually far more positive than I thought it would be and far mm. more creative than it might sound because the problem with there is a problem with too much rehearsal uh, in that you, your performances become a recreation of what you've all agreed is going to happen. Mm, yeah, and yeah. The, the, danger, the danger of that is obvious. When you don't have any rehearsal, then the performances are going to be very creative. And if you take an opera that people do know, I've done Mozart's in, this, um, in the situations you're talking about, mm. then the orchestra knows it and the singers know it and then of course nobody knows how it's going to be that night and if if things go well that can be incredibly exciting mm. yeah it's a bit it's a bit uh, i remember once in in munich the concert master during one of the restoratives asking me whether the next aria was going to be in two or four and you know <laughs> you do that is slightly unnerving to realize <laughs> the level of that one's engaging in but but you know, it forces you to be very clear and uh, 
and it enables you to be actually quite free at the same time. Yeah, I suppose you you know well also you have to resort to uh, you know being clear with your hands and arms and jet and facial gestures that after a lot of rehearsal maybe you, you don't need to as you said because it's already been arranged, prescribed, described. Whereas you know, Absolutely. You, you just go in on the seat of your pants. The first time I did the first time I did one of these things, I really realized how much expectation I was used to having been created by by the rehearsal mm. and the responsibility to just give an upbeat um, is is a healthy one to engage in teaching do you teach in any form at all i mean even if it's just master classes but uh, do you teach and do you enjoy teaching well i never taught but i've given a lot of master classes mm. and the distinction i think is that i have huge respect and admiration for the responsibility that teachers take on. In other words, I can go into some institution and give a masterclass. I see some conductors and it's very easy to immediately say what you think about what they're doing. And to a certain extent, it's very easy for them to respond to that. And everybody has a good time and a, it's it's very rewarding i love being reminded of the things i care about in a, when i'm in a situation where i don't have to impose them on myself i can be objective about the whole craft and that is fantastically educational for me as well mm. hopefully as for the students but i think to take responsibility which a teacher needs to do for somebody's long term growth, if you like, um, is something that, first of all, I wouldn't have the time for. But secondly, I don't know if I've got the, the experience or knowledge of what that really means. Mm. Because if, if, you're, if you're teaching somebody and that person can't, doesn't respond to what you're doing, uh, you've got to find a way through that. In a masterclass scenario, you know, you're moving on to the next person, frankly. So I love it. Um, and I love, uh, I, I love the opportunity that it brings to talk to the orchestra about what we're doing, because I mm. think um, a lot of orchestras, obviously there's so much, there's so much ignorance on both sides, frankly, uh, conductors and orchestras about what, what our pressures and needs are. And so to have the opportunity with a student orchestra to uh, I've done it with some professional orchestras, but on the whole, it's with student orchestras. But to discuss in a slightly more um, collaborative way what is working here and what is not working here and why that might be, um, I enjoy allowing the orchestra to understand a little bit about what we're all going through. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think whenever I've done something like this, and I've either been with youth orchestras or at the Conservatory in Birmingham, that both obviously the student gets something out of the masterclass but the orchestra especially if you can now and again just pitch something at them um and point out what how we think it gets them thinking and then you know that uh, about the whole conductor orchestra relationship it's a two-way street and it really does get them thinking uh, even down to the point i have at some point asked the conductor whispered in their ear and asked them to do a specific thing 
and then told the orchestra afterwards, did you notice that they did this? And the amount of people who don't notice, and then they're, they're engaged, they're, they're watching, they're watching your every move. I think it's more orchestras should do it. Absolutely, and I, I think, frankly, every music college, um, if you want to play in an orchestra, you should have to have some conducting uh, lessons or exposure to it, mm. because so much of the orchestral player's life is affected by their view of the conductor. Yes. That uh, um, they don't have to want to do it or be good at it, or but just to realize, as you say, to, to create more of a two-way understanding. Similarly, a conductor should sit in orchestra rehearsals. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think music colleges are not engaging enough in helping a relationship between conductor and orchestra. And because it, it's not just for the conductor's benefit that that relationship needs to be improved. It, it's arguably more so for the players mm. whose who's day-to-day life can so easily be affected yeah. by the conductor and you know their knowledge of what conducting is is not going to improve the conductor that's standing in front of them but it's going to enable them to articulate their frustrations or their thrills about the, the, the day's um, work and that has to be a good thing. When you come to learn a new score do you have a set system uh, for learning it, for instance, do you sit at the piano or do you sit in a quiet room at your desk? Uh, do you start at the beginning and work your way through? Do you flick through it? Do you use pencils uh, of different colours? Uh, what is your system? Um, I can tell you what I don't do first because that's mm -hmm. easier. I don't, I don't sit at the piano, partly because I'm not a good enough pianist, mm -hmm. but secondly because I, I think our job is to be, um, is to engage in colour and sonority and a piano doesn't you know I mean, if you're amazing at the piano of course you can do that mm. but you need to be amazing to do it so the piano doesn't really help me unless it's a very modern score that i can't hear mm. and obviously then i would sort of go to it um i don't mark much in the scores um certainly not in color partly because i don't know what to write um in and secondly i I'm worried of coming back to the score, then you are repeating some previous experience of it. So I, I like to keep my scores quite um, pure. Mm. Um, that's not to say I don't write anything in. And there is something about the action of, of doing the odd pencil sort of mark that somehow creates a connection between you and the music that, um, that is more significant than actually what you've written. So I do understand the reason people do it. Mm. Um, I try to take, I'm quite methodical about how I split a piece up and study it. And I tend to go through the piece initially quite quickly and then slower and then slower and then slower and then go through it faster and go through it faster and go through it faster. So it's like a sort of diamond shape in which the beginning and the end of the process is quite quick to get mm. through the piece. Uh, I don't think you, you can't just start at the beginning and turn each page only when you've learned it, whatever that means. So I, I have to kind of keep moving, but I do need to, um, I do need, obviously you can never say I know that piece. Um, and I've got better as I've got older at accepting 
that I'm not going to really know it until I'm working with the musicians. Mm, that's a fair And point. I, the reason I hesitate to say that, but also hesitated to feel that when I was younger, was I felt surely it's my job to know exactly what I think about the piece. And that's going to come from my preparation. And although that is still true, I think there's a great danger of being, I wouldn't say overprepared, but prepared in a way that is no longer open to what happens in the rehearsal. Mm, yeah, and absolutely. actually to realize that your decisions ultimately need to be circumstantial. It's, it's not your tempo that matters. It's what does that, what does your tempo sound like when played by those musicians? That's what matters. So mm. being more um, uh, trusting, uh, not of the players, but of yourself uh, to embrace what you hear and work with that still needs, you still need to be prepared before you arrive, um, but you do need to be open. And, and I think uh, having that combination of, of um, conviction and, um, and courage to release your conviction uh, is, 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 a, is an ideal balance. So away from the podium, um, you have presented a six-part TV series on BBC called Everything to Play For, written articles for The Guardian and The Independent, and sitting next to me on my desk is your book, The Silent Musician, Why Conducting Matters, which is a wonderful book, um, six or seven chapters about all aspects of what uh, conducting is, I think you write at the beginning, it's not a manual for, for conductors, but it's, it encompasses everything, you know, thought processes, um, your health, your attitude, learning music. What, um, what persuaded you or who persuaded you to write a book? Um, and did you enjoy the process of doing it? I wanted to write it for a long time. I'm glad I waited because um, uh, obviously, after 30 years of thinking about it, I, mm. I felt it's definitely, as you say, it's definitely not a manual for conductors. Um, it's because all of us are different and we, yes. and we have to be true to ourselves. And it's not necessarily even how I conduct, um, disappointingly, it's how I'd like to conduct. Mm. So it's, it's what I aspire to. I don't put it down as being this is what I do, but it's certainly what I believe in as mm. being some kind of ideal. It's written mainly for, for an uh, inquisitive audience member who wants to understand the relationship. But I'd like to think that conductors and players recognize some things in it that are uh, interesting and helpful. At this point, I'm going to read out to the listener, and just so the listener knows, this has been done afterwards and uh, edited in, a list of things that um, Mark asked some players that they expected conductors to be. So here is the list. Conductors need good baton technique, rehearsal technique, musicianship, knowledge, an interpretive conviction, an ability to communicate, to stretch and challenge people, to make the performance better than the rehearsals, to be inspirational, have a good ear, clear thoughts, reliability, competence, rhythm, an expressive face, sense of structure, ability to accompany, style, suitability for the repertoire, originality, knowledge of string bowing, an ability to collaborate, analyse and solve difficulties, explain why things need to be repeated, empower people, 
train people, make people listen. They must not talk, over-rehearse, under-rehearse, or be musically detached. They must have good manners, humour, respect, approachability, enthusiasm, encouragement, humility, positive spirit, patience, leadership, sincerity, audibility, creativity, an awareness of everyone, self-control, and strength of character. They must be relaxed, self-confident, empathetic, punctual, motivating, polite, authoritative, realistic, interesting, charismatic, persevering, committed, well-dressed, and even-tempered. They must be popular with audiences and show chastity, poverty, and obedience to the score. They must not be egocentric, intimidating, sarcastic, rude, boring, nervous, bullying, ugly, smelly, over-familiar, detached, pedantic, cynical, insecure, or blinkered. They must not change things for the sake of it, glare at mistakes, or hit the music stand. So, Mark, tell us about that list. Well, every word of that is true. They, I asked an orchestra for their views and I didn't make any of those words up. And I think <laughs> it brings home the impossibility of our... Yeah. Certainly, yeah. The, certainly the impossibility of our psychological task, as mm. in you can't please everybody any of the time, <laughs> all the time. And you have to be, uh, in the end, when you look at that list, you have to think... Uh, well, then the only option is to be true to myself. The mm. only option is to do what I believe. I think some of those things are um, instructive for us to think about. But what, what is sort of funny about the list is, of course, the, is the contradictions within it. Yes, of course. And, yeah. and, and if, you, if, you're too, if you're too stressed about um, over-rehearsing or under-rehearsing or that's talking not talking you can just end up trying to be somebody you're not and and that's what the players don't want that either mm. i think that's what also what also comes out in your in the book reading it is that you you don't as you said it's not a manual you know it, it what it does is it gives you options you you often will say you know i, I think that this is potentially the way that you should behave or conduct or be but then this is also, then, you know, plan B is also acceptable. Plan X, Y, and Z are not acceptable, but then C and D are also acceptable. You often give many different answers to problems. And I think that's why it was an interesting read. Well, I think, I mean, I struggled quite a lot with the fact that I was always contradicting myself or at least putting the other point of view. Mm. And when I was working, thinking of the title for the book, Balance, was something that kept coming up. It couldn't fit that into the title. Mm. We are dealing with not one way. We are dealing with a variety of approaches to a situation because situations, whether musically or because of the people in front of you, changing all the time, you can't approach it with one way. You mm. have to have options. And there is no one way. There's no one way for an orchestra, there's no one way for, for a composer. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a marvellous book. I recommend any anybody who's interested in classical music, orchestras and conducting to buy and read it. Um, and yeah, wonderful book. And thank you for writing it. 
Thank you. I loved writing it. I loved, I was, I was conducting at the same time as writing, which was, I was glad about, because I think if I'd shut myself away for six months, I would have forgotten things. And, and there were quite a few things that I sort of thought about as I was conducting that I must get into the book. But what I actually being forced to really think about what you feel, which is what writing does, um, was provoked me into some thoughts I hadn't had before. And I think the best bits of the book, or at least the books, the parts of the book that I like best, are the ones, new thoughts that came to me as a result of the need to write them down. So Mark, it's 10 questions time. And as ever, I start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, they're connected because I think my daughter's laughter is the mm -hmm. best noise I ever hear and her tears are the worst. <laughs> so that's the two sides of one coin. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. I've got two daughters and yes, to hear them giggling, to hear them giggling, they're now 17 and 20, but to hear them <laughs> giggling and laughing is wonderful. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? This was a very interesting question because we're so obsessed, all of us, aren't we? And, and we sort of think, oh, we should learn more music. But I would have to go for a walk, a long walk, to get out of the house, to get out of the opportunity of being distracted either by real life stuff or work stuff or the phone or the computer. But to, to, to go on a 10 hour walk would be uh, my day of choice and where would it be do you have a specific place you'd like to go walking um i don't think it matters where you walk although i'd want to not see anybody that would be quite <laughs> an important <laughs> thing uh, i live pretty isolated part of the country so walking around here is um uh is healthy from that point of view right it would definitely be it would definitely be countryside and uh as I say, ideally nobody else. <laughs> yeah, my favourite days on tour were with, you know, one or two mates on a free day. I'm talking about, you know, when I was in the orchestra, uh, one or two mates and we never saw anybody else in the orchestra for the whole day. Yes. That was that was always a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful free day. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, I'm sure a lot of people have answered this similarly. It so depends on the repertoire, doesn't it? it and all of us have music that speaks to us more powerfully than others and I would go to certain conductors for certain pieces of mm. music but I think in terms of sort of more recent times Abado and Haiting, I mean Haiting is still alive but in terms of it feels like a yesteryear conductor because he's been around so long I think what they would admire so much about them is their ability to be at the center of it all and yet actually it's not about them, mm, mm. even though they've got completely different temperaments. And even Abado, you think of him as a very glamorous figure, but still watching him conduct, so emotional, uh, but it's not his emotion. Mm. And that's, uh, I, I really aspire to that ability to be um, creating without um, overly involving yourself. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Well, it's the same question in terms of repertoire, because yes. certainly, you know, what 
I think we are expected to be all-round musicians, but um, there's something healthy about being so. But in reality, you know, we, we have affinities and empathies that are strong. But I think taking aside sort of musical um, uh, sensitivities that I might respond to, I think Ivan Fischer's approach to the relationship with the orchestra is one I admire hugely. He's, I love how iconoclastic he is. I love how sort of radical he is and, and just, um, you know, he endlessly curious about what might be possible. And I think we need that um, lack of predictability, um, not, not in music, but in, in terms of the, the process of a concert mm. and what that might mean for the public. I think his and his relationship to an orchestra um, feels to me very healthy. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, I think it is circumstantial that you have depends on the orchestra. <laughs> you can have um, you can have certain pieces that you thought were going to be easy, and then for various reasons the chemistry isn't right, and and, and doing it is unbelievably difficult, and vice versa. Yes, um, yeah. but. I think the piece that I will always remember as being unbelievably difficult, and that was with an orchestra that was fantastic, a relationship that was very positive, um, and everything going for it, and I still found it unbelievably difficult, was Berg's Lulu. Mm. Um, that was a very stressful experience <laughs> to, 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 to give the control that it needs with the Viennese lightness Balancing that was unbelievably hard. Um, yeah, I would definitely, I would love to do it again to see if I could have a go at making it less difficult. <laughs> I've only ever played in uh, the suite and that was hard enough. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, tough, tough piece. That's the palindromic one, isn't it, Lulu? All of that. And, yeah. you know, one can get go down all sorts of rabbit holes trying to work out you know, the, the things behind the music. But in the end, it is just beautiful, yeah. lyrical, in, um, schmaltz, albeit within a highly organised um, rigorous system. And you add that into the opera world, yeah. where every, everybody is kind of emotional. Um, and that's a hard um, set of ingredients to cook. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? That was actually quite an easy one for me, earplugs. Um, I find the noise pollution of our world so um, exhausting mm. and the opportunity to uh, get rid of some of it. I mean, obviously you still, have, you still hear a little bit, but it keeps you in your own world when you're travelling around. And uh, I get very stressed if I don't have my earplugs with me. I take them out to conduct, I should add. <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? This is really hard <laughs> because, because I, I don't know the answer to that, which I, I don't, I'm not going to cop out, but I think it would be something to do with the relationship you have with the musicians. Mm. As, and I don't blame the musicians for it. Um, of course I don't, and but it's it's so hard for conductors to to know sometimes what an mm. orchestra wants because because there is 
a barrier there, which is partly practical and partly professional. Um, but when that barrier is too severe, um, nobody, nobody benefits. So that is what I would like to change. But how, what I really mean by that, I don't know. And certainly how one does it, I don't know. But I do think at, as we alluded to earlier, at the music college level, there is not enough training given uh, about conducting to players and about players to conducting. And somehow the courses need to be more joined up from a very early age. And I think that would get rid of a lot of frustration that, that, that can build up in the rehearsal room. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, the fantasy one would be something to do with cricket. Oh, another cricket uh, fan. Wonderful. The, but, but, the, but the more real one would be writing. And I do, I do love the precision of words and I do love the control. I mean, I, I believe when you conduct, you shouldn't be in control completely. You should work with the players in the music making, obviously. Mm. But um, writing, it really is just up to you. And there's something wonderfully uh, demanding and exacting about that. But also, um, uh, you can take great pride in what you've written, if, it, if, if you like it. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, of course, if it was going to end tonight, you wouldn't have to worry about health, would you? No, not so at all. No, that was certainly why, <laughs> that's why a, I worded the question like that. <laughs> <laughs> it would certainly be a pudding, mm. for sure. And I don't have particularly, I wouldn't say I have um, extravagant tastes, so I'd be very happy with... Um, uh, what something like a apple crumble and ice cream mm. and and cream you have to have both cream and ice cream at the same time <laughs> and something to wash it down well before that I would love to have had a perfect glass of wine but I would need somebody to choose that for me Mark real pleasure I had a lovely time chatting to you and I hope to see you very soon thank you very much Mike it's been a pleasure A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who, until his early 30s, was very happy in his career as a flautist. Since starting conducting at that point, he has definitely made up for lost time by having held positions as chief conductor or music director on four continents. Until then, bye bye.